And if you have your Bibles with you, turn to the chapter or the book of Luke in chapter 2. And for the setting of our lesson, I want to read verses 1 through 20. Luke 2, 1 through 20. In those days, Caesar Augusta issued a decree that a census should be taking taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and she was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who were lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Wow. This morning... I want us to ask the question, what is Christmas? And as we pursue this particular question, uh, I was telling someone the other night, if my count is right, uh, this is sermon number 50 that I've preached for Christmas. Uh, this is my 50th year in ministry, and so this is Christmas sermon number 50. Uh, right now, I can't locate all the other 49. I have no clue <laughs> where all those notes were. In fact, the young man I was talking to, he was teasing me. He said, you need to go back and find those old ones and, and, and uh, wipe up, blow up the dust from them. He said, maybe the Lord will reveal something for you this morning. But as I thought, I was doing some serious thinking about that, talking about Christmas for 50 years. I don't know if you've thought about Christmas at that level for 50 years, but to think about what does it mean? What is it all about? 
Uh, and so I want, I want to pursue that this morning because it's interesting. We don't know the actual date when Jesus was born. And sometimes we look around and we think there are unbiblical practices that might be associated with it. And certainly too much commercialism gets attached to its celebration and it may lose its meaning. So I want to ask seven questions as we look quickly through answering the question, what is Christmas all about? First, is it okay to even celebrate Christmas? And I know this is a good question because in the past, I remember when I was growing up in the churches that I worshiped at, we tended to be judgmental toward those who celebrated Christmas because we confidently knew that he wasn't born on December the 25th, so we had it all figured out. And we knew better, and it was easy to look down on those who, no doubt, in our minds, were mistaken. And if they were practicing it, it had to be wrong because we wanted to be distinctive and different in our church practice. But this question, honestly, about celebrating certain religious feasts on certain days, it's a question as old as the Apostle Paul and the early church. This is not a new question. And here's how they dealt with it. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. And I love this chapter because it does provide some very specific guidelines on a very tough question. Okay? So you ready for this? It starts at Romans 14, verse 1. And this is it even starts off with something hard here. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. Have you ever figured out that I think churches major on quarreling over disputable matters? It's easy to get stuck in that mode, isn't it? One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. I wonder if he was talking about vegans today. No, that this is, this is the Jewish Gentile problem of eating meat and not eating meat offered idols. Verse 3, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Do you know how hard it is to stay away from either category of not treating someone with contempt that doesn't see it like you do or judging someone who doesn't practice it the way you do? Boy, I tell you what, this chapter hits at the heart of uh, human tendencies, doesn't it, and human nature. Because he says, the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now look at verse 5, really gets specific. One person considers one day more sacred than another. And other considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us who dies, we die for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died 
and return to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. So, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat. And as it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge me. So then, each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, stop passing judgment on one another. Wow. When I was growing up, I didn't hear a sermon on that. <laughs> and, I, and I look back, I can see why. It really gets to the heart of making sure that what I practice between myself and the Lord, I'm okay with that. And if you don't agree with that, I have to be okay with that because that's between you and the Lord. So if we practice Christmas as a special day, why do we celebrate it? This Christmas season, and that'll be our next question, um, some people refer to it as the Advent season, and that word Advent just means coming. And it focuses on the purpose, one single purpose, and recognition of the significance of Jesus' unique birth and entry into the world. Often, the miracle of Christmas is referred to in vague terms. But as Christians, we celebrate the virgin birth of Jesus because of his unique way of entering into the world. Believe it or not, Christmas helps the modern scientific mind to be reminded that the category of the miraculous is way beyond science and way beyond technology to verify. <laughs> okay. There's more to life than science and technology. Now, there'd be a lot of people that argue with you about that, but oh my. God choosing the virgin birth when the time was just right. That's the wording in Galatians 4, verse 4. When the time was just right, it demonstrated God's willingness to communicate his own essence and his very being to a material world where we as human beings, we only know things basically from the five senses, don't we? The uh, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard was famous for saying this because um, he was trying to talk about the Christian faith. Another person was arguing and saying, well, you know, you can't prove that with your five senses. And then he made this statement. The heart has reasons that the mind knows nothing of. <laughs> I like, yes, he nails it. It's the world of faith. It's beyond what is normal. Jesus coming into the world lets us know that God intentionally sent Jesus as a way of continuing to love, reconcile, and offer a covenant relationship to humanity. So what do we make of this intersection between faith and culture? It's delightful, really, to be shopping in Walmart or to be picking up the doctor's prescription at Walgreens and hear Christmas hymns coming out over the loudspeaker as you go up and down the aisle shopping. And I've often wondered, do people actually stop? And listen to the words of the song. Do they hear what they're hearing? It's such a strange situation because it's only during this time of year in a public place, both saint and sinner, skeptic and atheist, Muslim or Hindu, whatever your background is, to hear the beautiful story of Jesus 
and the basic concepts of the gospel being presented through beautiful traditional music. It just doesn't get any better than that. Music has a way of sinking words deep into our soul. And it should be our prayer that these public Christian hymns can serve as what I call missionary music, touching hearts through, uh, for those that throughout the rest of the year, you know, they probably haven't spent much time thinking about God. Well, these songs will help do that. The other night we uh, drove around, and if, and if you haven't done this, you probably will, or you already have, but we drove around looking at the Christmas lights. And in good, playful nature, we'd say, oh, okay, uh, that house doesn't have any Christmas lights, so uh, there are no Christians living there. Well, you, <laughs> of course you can't make that kind of assertion. Uh, and it made me realize, and I'm thankful, that Christmas and the story of Jesus coming into the world is much more than lights in the neighborhood. Uh, I'm thankful that we see the beautiful decorations and the lights in front of each house, but that's a cultural expression of Christmas that can't indicate what's going on in the heart. When Jesus came into the world, he didn't just come into a manger. He came into human hearts, and the whole thing changed. Number four, what are some healthy spiritual practices that can be observed with Christmas? And I'm going to mention a few, and you probably could think of some. Maybe you do some of these. But the reading of appropriate scriptures regarding the birth of Jesus and God's purposes. It's always amazing to me to go back to the original story and read it in the Gospels. The singing of hymns that highlight this purpose. The Lord's Supper always being presented as an extension of the miraculous birth. I've, I've often loved it when I would hear people say or even say in prayer, or sometimes even uh, during Christmas time uh, at communion, they would say something like, Jesus coming into the world is not the end of the story, it's the beginning of the story. And we're thankful he came because then he lived his life, he died on the cross, but he was resurrected. So the birth coming into the world is just the beginning of the story. Prayers being thankful for the gift of Jesus himself and our lives being offered as gifts to others and thankful for gift giving. I hope that never stops. Um, I've always been amazed through the years to watch and maybe in front of a church building or somebody's lawn, they'll have all the figures of the manger. You know, there's the, there's the camels kind of out on the outside. There's Mary and Joseph. It may have the wise men around the picture, but, the baby Jesus in a manger. So some of these visual practices related to the Christmas story, I think, are powerful. Sometimes some people light candles each week of the Christmas season, representing Jesus as light coming into the world. There's family fellowship and family prayers and family traditions. There's so many wonderful practices associated with Christmas, and I hope that they never end because it sort of answers the next question. Why do we look forward to Christmas so much? Well, from a selfish perspective, you're like, oh man, I wonder if there's going to be some really good packages under the tree with my name on it. So you shake it, you know. But the giving and receiving of gifts, uh, there's just something about the practice of the giving heart that makes us appreciate God giving Jesus to the world. 
Family gatherings are part of Christmas that we look so much forward to. Sharing of memories, but also creating new memories and taking lots of pictures. Table fellowship itself, and you may have your own Christmas dinner with your family. Uh, there may be lighting of candles and saying of prayers and things associated with that. But the anticipation, the expectation, the joy of giving, this is the time of year where the, this setting helps create meaningful memories built on your own family's years of tradition. Christmas gives us so much to look forward to, and it provides the exciting journey of joyous expectation. And I want to highlight this for a moment because I was thinking about that. That very wording highlights the second coming. We anticipate Jesus' second coming, so listen to this. Jesus' second coming into the world gives us so much to look forward to, and it provides the exciting journey of joyous expectation. Every day I wake up is part of my own exciting journey of joyous expectation of his second coming. What would happen, do you think, if Christmas just disappeared? Uh, the reason I asked that, we were watching a movie the other day where there was a Scrooge of a person who was so perturbed about the Christmas hullabaloo that they verbally said, well, I wish there was no Christmas. Well, the rest of the movie was as if Christmas didn't exist anymore. I was like, oh, wow. And it made me think this. What if Jesus had not come into the world? What if Jesus had not been born and come into the world? What if, we think the world's in a sad shape now. We don't have a clue. My brain can't even fathom a world where Christ has not entered. Now, there are many people that don't believe the literal entering of Jesus into the world. And many live as if he never came into the world. But for those of us who believe, Christ coming into the world means everything. It means God loves us. It means he wanted to communicate that love to us with the gift of his son. It means that God loves every single person. It means that God's grace and love and mercy was demonstrated by the birth, the life, the death, resurrection of this person named Jesus. So thankful of what it means. So what is the one message that I want to leave with today about Christmas? Every year, I'm reminded of the greatest gift of all. Jesus as God's gracious gift for me, because I am so loved. Now, you might think, well, in fact, I heard someone say uh, about a week ago, would it be great if Christmas Day was every day of the year? <laughs> you know, think about the energy, everything we do on Christmas Day, what, and the feelings that we have and everything associated with it. What if all of life were like that? There's just something special about celebrating Jesus coming into the world. And I suspect as long as Christianity remains on the face of the earth, Christmas will remain, and it's practice. I didn't have time. It is interesting if you look back on the history of how Christmas has evolved. And through the centuries, there were practices added to it. Um, and each, each little item that was added was supposed to represent something. But the core message, Jesus is God's gracious gift for me because I'm so loved. 
he sent Jesus into the world to send that message. Do we receive that message? It's, it's almost like, um, have you ever had the experience, you know, you, you wrap up a gift for Christmas, uh, you put the person's name on it because you know who it's going to go to, and you, you get ready to put it under the tree, but then you're like, okay, now, what should I put along with the person's name? Uh, this is for so-and-so. I had a hard time getting along with you this year, but I'm still giving you a Christmas gift anyway. Or <laughs> think about, typically we add to so-and-so with love, you know, or we'll add something short like that. And so the gift, interestingly, transcends anything that may have been unpleasant with that relationship typically, doesn't it? So this morning, as we think about this wonderful time of Christmas and what the fundamental basic message is, I want to remind us now of the call of the gospel. See, here's the interesting thing about the gospel message itself. There is a call to that gospel. There is a call to that Christmas message. 